welcome to the Please Be Seated podcast. Uh, I'm Luke. You may know me from Bottle O Productions uh, with my short films and podcasts of the past. Uh, but today I'm here with archaeologist uh, David Roll. Hi. Nice to hear from you. Could you introduce and explain your work to our listeners? Sure. I'll have a go. Uh, well, my name's David Roll. Um, I'm not just an archaeologist. I'm also an Egyptologist, which is somebody who specialises in the civilization of ancient Egypt. Um, I went to university and got the usual degrees in the subject areas and uh, I've been studying ancient Egypt for the past like 35, 40 years. Um, and I've come up with some interesting theories which have been best-selling books. So I'm a best-selling author as well. Um, I also present TV programs, uh, especially on archaeology. Um, so that's another angle, as it were, that I've been working on. Um, in addition to that, I also was a director of an institute dealing with ancient chronology. So uh, I'm a specialist in the timeline of the ancient world. And uh, on top of that, if that's not already enough for you, I also was a, a sound engineer in the in the 60s and 70s uh, and went on to become a record producer. Uh, I was also a music composer and songwriter. So I'm pretty much quite involved in a lot of different forms of media over the years. Today I, I don't do the, the pop and rock stuff anymore. I mainly concentrate on writing film music so, and TV music. So I, I still uh, get involved in it, although I'm basically retired now. But uh, I have had several different careers in my lifetime, partly to do with music and also to do with archaeology and ancient history. Am I right in thinking you did the soundtrack for the Patterns of Evidence film? Uh, I did work on some of the music for that. It was, there were three composers involved in that particular film, and I've done a lot of music for the next uh, episode in the series because he's making 12 different episodes altogether. And so I've been writing the music for the next one, which is on Moses. So, yes, I'm still doing all that. So when can we expect uh, the next Patterns of Evidence film? Well, they're finishing off the editing for the Moses program right now. Um, it should be finished within the next month. And then they're going immediately on to completing two more episodes before we, we do some more filming out in the Middle East. So we're going, uh, the, Tim, who's the director, is going out to Israel in about a month's time, but I won't be joining him out there until next year in spring. So we'll be doing more filming in Israel and Jordan. So uh, the production is continuing, and I expect to be involved in it for the next four or five years. So what's the best way for our listeners to find the Patterns of Evidence uh, film? Of well, it's still on Netflix in, in outside America. America, it's come off Netflix now, but it's still available on the world Netflix. So I saw it there the other day. Um, you can also, if you feel you're flush with some funds, you can actually buy the DVD or um, Blu-ray from the Patterns of Evidence web store. So you just put, type Patterns of Evidence into a Google search and it'll bring you up the web store and you can then actually order the DVD there. So that's another way if you want to look at it many times over. I'm Not that expensive. I might take a look into that as I, pref although I've seen it on Netflix, I do prefer DVDs. Yeah, you can flick them back and forwards and look at different chapters and things. So uh, we're looking today at uh, Ridley Scott's Exodus, Gods and Kings. Right. Um, so before we dip into how you know how how good or bad it is, um, mm -hmm. uh, what was your first experience with watching the film? Well, of course, I'd watched the previous Cecil B. DeMille movies, both the black and white version and the full color version called The Ten Commandments, with um, uh, the two great stars in it. Uh, one of them was Jules Brynner, and the other one was Charlton Heston. So that's a very famous movie. It was made a long time before you were born. But it's still shown regularly on TV, I think. Um, and that was the classic Exodus movie that everybody knows, especially at my age. Uh, and so when Ridley Scott said he was going to make it, I was very interested because I thought, right, well, here we've got a great film director who's uh, visually very, very strong. I would thought he would have made a fantastic version of it because he's made some great movies in the past. Hmm. But needless to say, when I did watch it, I was not only horrified, but also very disappointed. Hmm. It, do, it it doesn't feel the same as, you know, He Who Made Alien. It, it, it's a very different... Yeah, style. well, he does do different things. He does do classic movies like Gladiator in, in terms of historical recreations. Um, so he has done quite a few like that, but he does jump from, you know, that sort of thing to Black Hawk Down to Alien and to another historical do, um, film. So he's he's constantly moving from one to the other. But in this particular case, I think he put the, too much fantasy into it, to be honest. Yes, I, I, 
agree entirely. I'm not normally one for historical films, so my mm-hmm. literal first experience of it was this Friday when I watched it for the podcast. Ah, so, so very recently. Very oh, okay. recently. I, I ordered the DVD after we decided this was what we were doing. Right. Uh, and I had it on my shelf waiting. And I, I wasn't looking forward to it because of, you know, the, the inaccuracies, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. Right. But th- there, there are some enjoyable moments. Uh, uh, for, as a film, uh, I think it, it, it works. It has its, you know, it's, it's directed well. But mm-hmm. as a as a biblical account or even as an archaeological account, it doesn't really stand. Well, well, the problem, of course, is that something like the story of the Exodus, you'll never find that in archaeology anyway. I mean, you know, it's it's a narrative story where you can't expect to find much archaeological evidence for somebody crossing a sea or, you know, 100,000 people moving through a desert, especially if they're nomads and they don't carry pottery with them. So you're not going to find any archaeological evidence anyway. And most historians and archaeologists dismiss the story as fiction as it stands. So not many people believe it actually happened, apart from, I would say, Christians and and Orthodox Jews. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those stories that... I think Ridley Scott looked at it and thought, right, time to make, re, do a remake of the original Ten Commandments that uh, Cecil B. DeMille made, and let's do it with all the modern technology we have today, you know, with the recreations, the CGI and all that. So he did have a very, very strong visual representation in the movie, but sadly, uh, when it came to the advice he was getting from historians, etc., he literally ignored them and went for the epic fantasy version. Uh, he could have made something much more realistic, but he didn't. The idea of seeing God through a child was a very odd. It idea. was very odd, and most people thought it very disturbing, to be honest. Mm. I mean, you know, when you've got when you've got a fully grown man in his forties um, talking to this little boy who's telling him what to do, that 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 goes against the grain, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And and it just just totally contradicts what uh, most people's view of the the story in the Bible is all about. You know, you. You think of you think of this god figure as a big old man with a big white beard sitting on top of a mountain, not not this little kid who pops in and out and then shouts at uh, at Moses occasionally. So it, that was very strange. But the other thing that was very peculiar, and he got a lot of trouble, he uh, got a lot of brickbacks from people about it, was the fact that he used mostly white actors and. Uh, so there were a lot of people saying that, well, hang on a minute, the Egyptians aren't white. Why have you betrayed them as white people? And the only black people that appeared in the movie were the slaves, the that ones is... that were fanning the fans and, and, and carrying things for Pharaoh. Which... I hadn't noted that, but that is a major point. Yeah, it's very, it was very political at the time. A lot of the out-of-Africa types in America uh, were very angry because uh, they, they, you know, they think that the Egyptians were sub-Saharan black people, Africans. Uh, I don't actually agree with that. A lot of people will know that uh, the Egyptians intermarried a lot with people from the north, so they would marry princesses from the Hittite kingdoms or the Mesopotamian kingdoms. And so with that inbreeding of these cultural mixes, they tended to be a little bit paler than you would expect from southern Africans. So they weren't necessarily always dark skin they sometimes were something in between as it were and if you look at modern egyptians today they're not very dark skinned either so you could he could have he could have done something that uh, was more true to the spirit of uh, northeast africa but unfortunately he did pick all white actors apart from those people who were actually servants and slaves which was a bit inappropriate hmm. So, of course, one of the, the main points of your new chronology um, is that of uh, Ramesses not being the pharaoh of the Exodus. Right. Absolutely, um, yes. Could, could you explain the common misunderstanding to... Well, Ramesses? it's complicated, but if, if I go through it slowly for you. Um, in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, in the very first chapter of the book of Exodus, it says that the Israelites were building a store city called Ramses for pharaoh. Now, when scholars looked at that, they immediately thought, well, the only Ramses we know of is Ramses II. It's got to be him that's the pharaoh of what we call the Exodus and oppression. So that's how it came about. But um, Ramses is also mentioned much, much earlier in the Bible, in the time of Joseph, who came into Egypt as a slave uh, and uh, brought his father and his other brothers into Egypt. And at that time, he settled his father Jacob in the land of Ramesses. Now, there were no Ramesses three or four hundred years before the time of Moses. So it shows you what we've got here is what we call an anachronism. In other words, an editor has gone into the Bible text 
and changed the name of the place to what it was known as in his own time for his own audience. So let me give you an example. Um, let's say that the Roman Sixth Legion established their camp at, Eber uh, at York in northeast England. Well, it was not called York at the time, but if you read that in Encyclopedia Britannica or one of the other texts, or even on the internet, it'll say that they established this camp at York. What it was called in the time of the Romans was Eberacum, and it was only called York later on when the Vikings came along and named it Jorvik. So that's an example where modern texts would refer back to a historical event and give the name of the place as it is today, rather than as it was in the time that the Romans were there. And that's what happened with this name Ramesses, some later historian writing in the Bible or correcting the Bible or editing the Bible gave the name in his time in the 7th century BC rather in, in the time that the events actually took place in the 15th century BC when it had a completely different name. It wasn't called Ramesses, this city. So the link to Ramesses II is actually non-existent. It's not really real. Yeah, I think that's like a, a good point on how, you know, how strongly scholars held to the idea that that must be when it's set, when really... And they, they still do. I mean, there's many, many scholars who still stick with that, but then when they do, they don't find any evidence for the Exodus at all. So, um, and, and the whole thing is out of kilter with the Bible. Nothing in the Bible seems to work when you look at the historical window from an Egyptian perspective. And that's why one of the reasons why I decided that the Egyptian timeline was wrong, and we had to adjust it, correct it. And once I'd done that, we found everything did fit together, but it certainly wasn't Ramesses II, it was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. It was a much earlier affair in Egyptian history. Um, and we've also got the, I won't go massively in-depth, um, mm -hmm. but we've also got the, the issues with Shishank and Shoshank. Absolutely, um, yeah, that's another very complicated situation. But it's all part of the same problem, where scholars have used the Bible to date Egyptian history, and then they've used Egyptian history to dismiss the Bible as fiction, so it's like a completely circular argument. You can't, you can't use the Bible to date the Egyptian timeline. You have to use the internal Egyptian evidence and archaeology. And then once you've done that correctly, then you can look out across Sinai to Israel and try to find out some synchronisms or matches between Egyptian civilization and the biblical story. That's the right methodology. But you certainly can't go around choosing biblical uh, episodes, trying to make a link with Egypt, and then finding there's no historical evidence or archaeology and dismissing the Bible as fiction. That's completely circular. For our listeners' information, you still call yourself agnostic, so there yeah. there, there isn't that much bias under. No, the I mean you, you know what the word agnostic means. It doesn't mean atheist. It be, basically means not knowing, and that's the position I prefer to be in. I can I cannot, in my on all honesty, prove any biblical uh, miracles ever happened. And archaeologists can't do that. So I can look at people in archaeology and bones and stones, but I'm not going to be able to prove any, any, any of the miracles. And I can't prove God exists. And I've not seen any direct evidence in my own research for an existence of a supreme being. So that's something that you do with your faith. That's a matter of faith. And in my particular view, although I, I respect Christians and Orthodox Jews and Jews and, and, and Muslims who, who have religion, but I personally uh, find no evidence for it, and therefore I remain an agnostic. I remain somebody who's not knowing. Do you think you'll continue to be not knowing throughout your career, or do you think you'll find something that will swing? Well, I always think that an agnostic is somebody that's on a journey, uh, going down a road, and that road is quite difficult sometimes. You know, you've got a, you know, rocks in the way, as it were, but I'm never close-minded to it. I'm not going to sit down at the roadside and say, right, I've done enough. I'm going to keep going down that road. And if something comes along in the future or I have some revelation of some sort, I'm quite happy to accept that. But at the moment, I don't see any evidence. And therefore, I remain open-minded, but I'm still traveling. So what brought your um, interest into Egyptology? Well, I started younger than you, mate. I, I started at the age of probably six or seven. Um, do, do you remember when you were in junior school? Uh, was it? Was it? I don't know. What, I think it was called junior school in my day. Yeah. Where you you did a couple of weeks on ancient Egypt and everybody went to art classes and drew pictures of Egyptians and pyramids and stuff. Do you remember all that? Yes. Before you moved on to the Greek world and the Roman world, and then. Because I specifically remember getting really annoyed at my year five teacher for calling them hieroglyphics instead of hieroglyphs. 
Well, exactly. Well, some people do. But, I mean, I don't mind people calling it hieroglyphics, but hieroglyphics is a much nicer term. But, yeah, but that's when it sort of started for me. Um, so I don't know what age. What, what age would year five be? Would the, would the, year what, five so, is ten. Ten, okay. Well, I was doing it at the age of seven. So okay. that's year and, three, I think. All right. Oh, yeah. uh, but I'm pretty sure most schools do Egyptology between the ages of eight and ten, something in that, in, mm. in that area, for a couple of weeks, and then you move on. Um, so I was doing it at the age of seven. I was writing out the, the names of the Egyptian kings in hieroglyphs, and then next to each of the names I would write the Greek version of the name, and I would write the translation into English. And I was doing this for all 30 dynasties. So that at the age of 17 is a bit extraordinary. And I, don't, I can't tell you why I did it. I've got no, you know, memory isn't that good, thinking back to motivations. But I do have materials that I wrote down at the age of 7 and 8 of this material. So I know I was doing it, but I don't know the motivation behind it. And then I went to Egypt for the first time at the age of 9, and um, I don't know if you know, but the Egypt had a revolution in the, in the 1950s, and they kicked out their king, King Farouk. And so I went there in 1960 at the age of nine, and uh, he'd been kicked out of the country, but his royal yacht or paddle steamer was sitting there on the banks of the Nile, and we commandeered it. And we sailed all the way from Cairo, all the way upstream 700 miles to Abu Simbel. And, and there was this little kid of, of nine years old who was... Uh, going into the temple of Abu Simbel all on his own, because there were no tourists at that time at all, it was soon after the Suez crisis, and exploring Egypt virtually as a, a young kid with my mum, and uh, nobody else there, no other tourists there, and it was quite an extraordinary experience. Certainly. Um, so if we go into the, the film, uh, yeah. Exodus, Gods and Kings, um, straight up at the start we've got Moses being sent to attack an army and the high priestess finds a prophecy uh, that one um, being Moses or Ramesses will save the other and become a leader. Now that's extremely interesting because in the Bible it doesn't mention Moses being a military commander but we do have document, documents written by uh, somebody called Artapanus who was a Jewish historian of Turkish or Iranian extraction who was writing the history of the Jews in the Alexandrian library for the Greek pharaohs called the Ptolemies and and his manuscript was unfortunately destroyed in the Alexandrian fire when the library was burnt down but other people other classical historians quote from him because they actually read his documents and they they quote passages from his text and what he does mention is the fact there was an invasion of Egypt by people called the Kushites so our or people from Sudan today, uh, right down in the south of the Nile, Nile Valley, and they invaded Egypt, and it, he talks about Moses as a commander of the Egyptian army and the prince of Egypt, repelling these Kushites, and, and, and in fact driving them back into Kush, and invading Kush himself, and marrying a Kushite princess, which is very strange, because this Kushite princess, this this person from the south, this woman from the south, appears just once in the biblical text when the Moses and the Israelites are wandering around Sinai, and suddenly she appears there out of nowhere, and there's no historical background for her except in this Artapanus manuscript or this Artapanus document document. So it's amazing that what Ridley Scott did was he took this extra biblical material that's not in the Bible and put it into his film and put Moses as the commander of the Egyptian army, which is exactly as Artapanus describes it. So from this point in your first experience watching it, was, was it looking good? Uh... It was once I got over the fact everybody was white, <laughs> yes, yeah. then it started to get interesting. But I could see where it was going. Okay, so you, uh, you, the, um, um, we'll get on to it when you get to the, the crossing of the, the sea, etc. But uh, yeah, there were hints in there. And I have to tell you, that when it was in production, or before it was in production, in pre-production, there was a big news splash about him doing it. And I wrote to the production company and said, if you want a consultant, I'm available. And I got a very nice reply saying, yes, we'll consider it. And in the end, they chose somebody else. That person was a good friend of mine. He's called Professor Alan Lloyd. And unfortunately, it seems to me, having watched the movie, that they completely ignored what he would have advised them because he's no... 
he's not going to be a person who told, or would tell them about this stuff that they put in the movie. In fact, he's, he's a very, very good scholar. And he would never have said, you know, go and cross the Red Sea and, 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 and do all this stuff. But in fact, they obviously had him in there for credibility. And then they totally ignored what he said. So, you know, in a, in a different universe, it could have been you who were consulted. And, well, yeah, and know. it would have been a very different film, I have to say, if that had been the case. Because uh, my view of the story of the Exodus is nothing like what you see in that movie. Mm. I think it's quite intriguing that Ridley Scott, as I believe an open atheist, has, you mm. know, taken the the fantasy look at things. He's He's gone, he's delved a lot into sort of religious ideas with, like, Kingdom of Heaven Yes, like exactly. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I admit I didn't watch all of Kingdom of Heaven. <laughs> well, there wasn't much religious in that, to be honest. No, but uh, it, it was pretty bloody. But it's, I love that film. I mean, I, when I when I heard he was going to do Exodus, I thought, well, if he does it anything like he did Kingdom of Heaven, it's going to be fabulous. Um, but Kingdom of Heaven was, is beautifully crafted. The music is absolutely stunning in it. Uh, I know he knew, usually uses Hans Zimmer, but he didn't use Hans Zimmer in that. But the music is, the medieval music is wonderful. The story itself is pretty accurate in that movie, except the setting for Jerusalem is completely wrong. He, he just chose a massive flat desert area and just plonked his, his reconstruction there. Well, of course, Jerusalem is in the mountains. It doesn't look anything like that. But, um, you know, the characters in it, the historical characters were, were, were good. They were originals, you know, that we actually know from historical documents. So uh, I thought he did a very good job, and I've got two versions of that DVD. I've got the editor's, uh, the director's cut, and I've got the original one. And uh, I think it's a great movie. I, I can't like say that I've gone and bought the Exodus one, though. Okay. Um, so I say, when was the last time you'd seen the film, then? A while back. Um, I didn't really want to see it a second time, to no. be honest. Uh, it sort of seared into my brain now what he did with the story. So... Uh, um, I don't think I could put myself through that again. That would be just uh, too masochistic. Um, I, don't, I don't think it it'd be great on rewatch, really. The, the, I say the the soundtrack in Exodus and the uh, the cinematography is great, mm -hmm. but from yeah, a, and, the, and the CGI as well. Let's not forget yes. that. That's pretty brilliant too. Uh, but from a, you know a perspective of accuracy or critique, really, it's not. Well, it's also the fact that, really, a good film starts with a good script, doesn't it? And yes. good research. And, and then if you've got a great director who can do great visuals and can work with actors and, and get the best performance out of them, that's terrific. But if you start with a bad script and you start with a bad idea, then you never, even if, if you are the most greatest director on the planet, you're never going to turn out a good movie with it. So, really, the film could have been very different if, you know, after the script he had, I mean, I don't know if he did, if after the script he had sent and consulted with, you know, other archaeologists and people. Well, well I, get, sure. I get that feeling, but again, again, he probably, you know, when, when you think about it as an epic, uh, maybe the reality wasn't grand enough for him. Maybe he wanted something more spectacular than reality. Because if we're going to take the miraculous elements of the story and treat them in, in a modern scientific world, I mean, let's face it, most of our understanding of the biblical miracles is based on the fact that the ancient peoples didn't have science. So they looked at these things as the works of God. And, and therefore, if they couldn't explain them in terms of their natural environment and the, and the world they lived in, they called them supernatural. But well, we have explanations for these things now in the modern scientific world. So, you know, if you, if you turn the Exodus story into a, a different version, which is viewed through the spectacles of modern science, you could actually have a very different version of the story. And that's what historians would have done. But, of course, that might not have suited Ridley Scott. He, maybe that wasn't spectacular enough for him. I mean, I think he's essentially done a very similar thing to what happens in many primary schools, and I'm thinking especially of my year four Christmas play, where right. they feel the need to put aliens in the nativity, and I think it's, oh dear. it's really, <laughs> you know... Well, that's what people do, unfortunately, and, and you know, it, it sometimes you, you need to have good consultants when you're making a movie that, that know the material. And it could have been a, a much more... 
dynamic story from the point of view of personal interactions between the actors and the and the, the players, as it were, in the story, rather than concentrating so much on the, the visual aspect of it. I mean, that should be good too. But there are some of the greatest movies and some of the Oscar winners are not the big spectacular ones. They're the ones where the acting is really astonishing and the interrelationship between the characters really works. Those are the films that people really love, not necessarily the big epics. I mean, The Breakfast Club was a very small budget one room right. people talking and that's exactly loved and talked about to this day and I, I i'll ask your opinion on this i've heard that several people have said in terms of accuracy in costume and makeup um a lot of the biblical epics don't really work and a lot of people say that life of brian is the most accurate costume wise <laughs> uh, well, biblical epic not, would you stand with it's that not, a, not only accurate but beautiful beautifully mm. made uh, it's funny. It's funny because I had this memory of uh, the life of Brian from way back, and I went over to the states and I stayed with some ev- evangelical friends of mine. And I said, "Have you ever seen the life of Brian?" And they said, "Oh no, no, we wouldn't watch that. You know, it's a, it's a sort of, it's not a proper religion. It's not proper Bible. It's taking the Mickey out of Jesus." I said, "No, it's not." Mm. Brian isn't Jesus. Jesus appears in the film as a sort of distant character. It just plays on the idea of a prophet being worshipped by a bunch of people who don't know any better. It doesn't actually criticise Jesus at all. So I said, why don't we sit down one night and we'll get it on Netflix and I'll, we'll watch it together. So we did. And all these devout Christians were sitting there and I'd forgotten how, much, how many swear words there were in it. And, 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 and so I got really embarrassed when they were cussing and swearing all the way through the movie and of course and thought, the, uh, oh the infamous nudity as well uh, of course yeah so yeah. i'd forgotten all that i just remember the wonderful humor of it and so i was quite embarrassed by that but they were all right they were quite gentle with me but um, i thought maybe i better not do that again but yes that's what happened you see you you can do something original with the biblical stories but really if you're all you're doing is copying cecil b demille with the exodus story and using more elaborate cgi now which cecil b demille never had then you are obviously just going to go for the visual aspects of it, and you're not really going to get into the characters and the storyline, which is what's crucial in a movie. I say in terms of uh, Life of Brian, I'm actually working on an essay uh, in my own time, comparing Life of Brian to Whistle Down the Wind in terms Another of... Good movie. Oh, Whistle Down that. the Wind is, um, you know, there wasn't really any controversy of that, but both films are about a guy being mistaken for Jesus, so at exactly. what point does something become offensive is what I'm trying to find. Well, certainly not Whistle Down the Wind, because I saw that about your age, and it's such a wonderful, wonderful movie with Hayley Mills in there. The, the char- characters are fantastic, the kids are fantastic, the character who plays the Jesus figure in there is fantastic. Of course, I think it's black and white, isn't it, if yeah. I remember rightly? And it's so beautifully crafted, and, and it's emotional. It's the most wonderful story, and that's what I'm talking about. You start with a great story, and you can make a great film. If you start with a script and story that doesn't really do justice to the subject matter, then you're not going to make a good film. Whistle Down the Wind does, it doesn't demand a, a remake, which, you know, Hollywood no. tries with several films to oh, give I it hope a remake. They don't do that. I know, I really hope they don't do yeah. that. I, I definitely hope not. Um, they've... Well, they they remaking so many classic films now. Uh, yeah, and they're never as good as the originals, yeah. are they? Apparently, this year they're remaking The Naked Gun. Uh, I don't oh. know how that's going to work. Right. Um, Ed well, Helms that's be, that's lead. because Hollywood's run out of ideas, hmm. to be honest, and that's the problem. With Ed Helms in the lead, it's just going to be crude, um, which The Naked Gun wasn't really. So. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I can't think of any remake that's massively worked um no not not me either at the moment um i hope they never make lawrence of arabia again either that's no. another that's a classic they should never remake something like that but uh, no hey, i can't there was a national lampoon's vacation remake that wasn't terrible um, it wouldn't bother me quite frankly because never even saw the first one so I, I, I wouldn't worry too much about that i don't like oh. american humor that much no British dry humour is... Oh, absolutely. Sarcasm, <laughs> yeah, and, and banter, that's what's good humour. But the Americans don't understand it very much, very easily. They don't, they don't, they don't grasp it too easily. Yeah, Keeping Mum and A Fish Called Wanda and things like that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. back to uh, Exodus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got... Um, uh, where, where are my notes? Hang on. Um, Moses saved Ramesses's life, uh, but right. he sees no way that he could become a leader. Um 
which I think is once again uh, quite a, an interesting point and part. And I'll, I'll admit it's been a long time since I read the Book of Exodus, so mm. I'm not sure how much of this is. Well, it, it, there's an indication, in, certainly in Artabanus, and I suppose also in in the, the Book of Exodus as well, that Jesus does is very popular amongst the population. Uh, that's certainly the case in Artabanus. Uh, you know, as a general, he was m much loved and and appreciated. And in fact, Artabanus says that the king who was ruling at the time that Moses was this general, this this commander of the troops, was very jealous of him because he was getting all the adulation, whereas the the pharaoh who sat on his backside. Uh, back in the palace and hadn't gone out to campaign was was not popular and that was one of the motivations for Moses fleeing into Sinai so that's a, that's something that's not mentioned in the biblical story in the biblical story Moses uh, kills uh, one of the supervisors of the slaves uh, and and that's the reason why he has to flee but this this extra background material that we have from Artabanus which tells us that he was actually very popular, but the Egyptian uh, king, the pharaoh, didn't like him being popular, and that was the reason why Moses felt his life was in danger. Um, and then Moses is sent to Pithom to meet... Yeah. Uh, I, I can't even... I've, I've got his name written down, Viceroy Hegep, or Hegep, is it? The well, I don't know, but that, that's not—that's not, that's something that the Ridley Scott's people have invented, yes. to be quite honest. I mean, they—they they come up with these funny names, but uh, we won't worry about that one. That one's just—you know—somebody's just got that out the top of their heads, basically. I say I'm—I'm I'm terrible with names. While watching and taking notes of the film, mm -hmm. I also had to have the Wikipedia synopsis left open so I could okay. remember everyone's names. You can uh, see the rest. But that part of the story again is—is—that's is, Ridley Scott's script writing. That's nothing to do with the biblical story. And and uh, at this point, which I think is quite interesting, that Moses uh, does not believe in the God of Abraham. Yeah. Uh, at the start, um, which are, which is quite an interesting part of the story. Um, well, there's, we, bear we in mind, though, there's, some, there's, there's something to bear in mind here, which is rather controversial, and that is Moses doesn't actually learn the name of God in terms of the story of Exodus until the burning bush episode, where he's. You know, where he actually asks, well, who is this voice coming at me from the burning bush? And, and God speaks to him and says, I am this God called Yahweh, or I am who I am. And, and that's the first time that Moses is aware of this name. So when you talk about the God of Abraham, it's actually quite a controversial thing, but many scholars believe that Abraham worshipped a God called El, and El Shaddai, which is not the same name as Yahweh, by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, then most uh, theologians will argue, well, El is an early name for Yahweh. Well, that, that is possible. But in fact, Yahweh seems to be a god associated mainly with Sinai and Midian uh, and that area. So perhaps he didn't learn of this god until he fled into the desert. And so why would he know about uh, a god called Yahweh when he was a prince of Egypt? Of course he wouldn't. Um, and then... Uh... Nun tells Moses of how Miriam found him in the basket. Yeah. And I had, you know, completely forgotten, uh, to be honest, about um, the fact that, you know, he doesn't necessarily know um, what happened right. uh, as a child. Because I don't, I don't think that is, you know, a, a pivotal point when people are taught the story in Sunday school. Um... Well, it should be, because there are many children who get adopted by parents, and those adopt adopted parents never tell the child that, they, that he's got another father or mother. Uh, and that is basically the story we have in the Exodus as well. Moses is not aware, when he's raised a prince, that he's a Hebrew, that he's an Israelite. Um, so that's understandable, and that's actually a very human thing that you could even look at in modern terms. And then uh, two of the Hebrews overhear Nun's story and report it to Hegep, and yeah. and then I've just got straight after here that Seti is very ill and dies, so Ramesses the second is now Pharaoh. Pharaoh, right. Well, because Seti the first is Ramesses the second's father in the 19th dynasty in real terms. So uh, if you're going to have Ramesses the Pharaoh of the Exodus, then clearly you're going to have Seti around when Moses is born. That would make absolute sense. But as we've said, Ramesses wasn't the pharaoh of the Exodus. But, that, you know, that's why Ridley Scott is sticking with the traditional ideas of having Seti as the man in the time when the king when, when Moses is born, and then Ramesses being the, the contemporary of a, a more adult or, or at least youthful uh, Moses. So the two of them are 
competing, as you know, in the film. Uh, they're brothers almost, but they're competitive brothers. Um, so when do you, how long do you think it'll be until you know your chronology is a lot more <laughs> noticed? I think I, I think I'll be well buried in the ground before it gets accepted. But uh, gradually, gradually, for sure, uh, people are becoming more prepared to look at it and, and invest some time in it. The, the ordinary focus, they were the non-academics, love it, of course. This is, it's very, very popular because they see it for what it is. They see it for the simplicity of it and the fact that it makes sense. The academics are sort of encumbered with a great lot of emotional baggage that comes with being an academic that they've learnt this over their whole lifetime and they've actually defended the, the biblical story with Ramesses as a fair of the Exodus, even though the archaeological evidence doesn't merit it. But they, therefore, they're, they're almost apologetic, as it were. So, trying to get them to think of something new, a new revolutionary idea, is going to be difficult. And I don't, I don't blame them for that. It's, it's understandable. It's very difficult to change your mind about something when you've been researching and studying it for 40 years. Hmm. Um, it's odd how many people are almost offended by the idea of, you know, what they about of it being dismissed of the, you know, what the the, the current idea being dismissed when really you know you're not dismissing anything that is written in the bible not at all you're you're dismissing essentially popular culture well you do well, you're, i'm mixing two things which are very different difficult uh, they're almost like um, creating a new tnt version those two things are the bible and ancient egyptian chronology when you took those things together you make a very explosive mix because they're both extremely uh, controversial subjects Many people dismiss the Bible as being fiction, you know, including your atheists and some scholars. And in terms of Egyptian chronology, that's sacrosanct. That's something that's been cast in stone for, for the last 150 years. So when you try to change both of those or marry those two things together to get something new, of course you're a maverick, you're a charlatan, you're a, you know, you're a crook, you're, you're manipulating the evidence. And that's those, those are the various words that have been used to describe me over the years. But now... Fortunately, I think people are being a bit more respectful. They're looking at the ideas. They don't always agree with them, of course. But, uh, you know, I, I often have debates with the senior academics in the States and in Europe and in the UK, and they're very respectful to me. They don't, they don't dismiss things out of hand. They don't agree. But I think that's the right way to go about it, proper debate, proper understanding of people's arguments, making sure you know what a person's arguments are and not misinterpreting them. It's all part of the process of changing knowledge, of moving forward, and that's where the situation we're in now. But I, I still think we're looking at probably at least another 20 to 30 years, I would think, before something like as radical as this is, will be accepted. Have you had any major backlash after any of your talks or um, speeches? When, when, when you mean by backlash? In the audience, you mean? Yeah. Well... Occasionally, when it first came out, and I was doing a big lecture tour of the UK when the first book came out and the Ferris and Kings TV series came out in 1995, you would, I would occasionally get somebody standing up in the audience and sort of shout and scream. Not very often, to be quite honest, but mostly the, the audience would turn around and tell them to shut up or get lost. So it didn't bother me too much, to be honest. And yes, academics in review or in mentioning in various papers or whatever would accuse me, as I say, of being a charlatan or, or something. So, But that's changed now. Even Professor Kenneth Kitchen, who was my nemesis, as it were, he was the main critic of me, because he's the great high priest of chronology in, in Egyptology. He initially said that I was 98% rubbish. And then uh, a couple of years later, with inflation, it had gone up to 100% rubbish. But then we had a big debate in Reading University in front of 400 people, and he sat down and acknowledged the fact that my theory was as strong as his own. So he'd, he'd mellowed and, and was starting to look at it more seriously. And that's the way this process works in academia. You get very strong resistance to start off with. You get a lot of ridicule. And then eventually, as though that generation of scholars dies out or retires, new younger scholars come along to fill their boots. And they are much more open-minded towards these sort of revolutionary ideas because they've grown up with them. And then in the third generation, they turn around and say, well, we, we can't understand what all the fuss was about. Yes, it makes absolutely sense, and now we accept it. And that's the process you go through with academia. Hmm. And then later on in the, the film, uh, yeah. Egypt tells Ramesses of Moses' true identity, and then uh, we get the whole... Um, quite horrible almost torture scene 
of uh, Miriam uh, being, you know, forced to speak the truth. And as uh, as she denies being his actual sister, Moses confirms uh, the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I can can see that playing out in real life. I think that would be something that could happen. Um, you know, and that's not far-fetched by any stretch of the imagination. What you're talking about so far is interrelationship between people and characters. We've not had a single miracle in what you've described so far, so that's interesting. We've not got to the fireworks yet. The fireworks start with Moses and a mature person. So it's very interesting that the beginning of the story is actually quite a personal narrative. You know, and, and the sort of thing you would expect in a normal movie. It's not particularly the fact that it's set in ancient Egypt doesn't really drive it to be the biblical, miraculous, supernatural event that we're coming to as we go through the story. Which the odd thing um, is later on, um, when Moses goes on the journey, um, he's supposed to be in his 70s, is he not? <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's a great problem, isn't it? Because he's supposed to be 120 years old when he dies. Well, not impossible. We do have some people who are in their 110s. But to be honest, it's a little bit far-fetched. Uh, there again, um, you know, people, some people argue that the type of diets of these people, that meant that they were much healthier at a much older age. And some people argue there's been this DNA mutations which have changed longevity to make our life shorter. Who knows whether any of that's real or not. But yes, I mean, we do have a situation when Moses comes back to Egypt from the desert out of exile and he leads the people out of, out of Egypt. He's actually 80 years old at that point. And so, uh, well, according to the Bible, and he's another 40 years in the desert before he actually dies, so he gets up to 120 years. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're leading, you know, 30 or 40,000 people out to the desert, and you're having to look after them all, I wouldn't particularly want to be doing that at the age of 80. No, not at all. Um, I wouldn't want to be doing that, ever, really. <laughs> uh, so, um, Ramesses exiles Moses for this, and uh, Miriam... Uh, calls Moses by his birth name of is it Moshe or Moshe? Moshe, Moshe, um, which which according to biblical tradition means drawn out of the water because he was removed in this basket from the river Nile, but actually it actually is much more related to the ancient word Moshe or Mos that you find in Moser that you find in Egyptian, which is normally it means born of or offspring of. So, for instance, Ra Moser or Ramesses is born of the god Ra. Thutmose is born of the god Thoth. Uh, Amun Mose is born of the god Amun. So it's very likely that, it, it, uh, that Moses had an Egyptian name, something like Sobek Mose, which means born of the crocodile god, or Happy Mose, born of the Nile inundation god, which was his original name. And the Mose bit is simply a short form of the name. Moses comes to Midian where he meets uh, Zipporah and her father Jethro. Right. And Moses marries Zipporah and becomes a shepherd. Yep. And Zipporah has a son, Gershom, and you know that is all shown through quite a short sequence, really. Yeah, and it's all in, that's all in the Bible, so there's nothing yeah. wrong with any of that. That's all fine. All of that, you know, good biblical accuracy, and then we get to Moses hurting himself during a rock slide and seeing <laughs> a burning bush with yeah. a child speaking through him. Uh, right. With God, yeah. which is. Well, this is the first time we get something we might call miraculous, isn't it? Which is a bush that doesn't burn. Yeah. Uh, that just has flames that doesn't burn, and you get the voice coming out of it. Well, this is where we start to get to faith now, because that obviously is something that a historian or an archaeologist cannot prove. The, 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 my problem with uh, God appearing as a child is that it's the same age as, you know, Gershom is through most of the film. And it's yes. quite awkward having, and quite odd having Moses, you know, looking after and helping Gershom grow up, well, mm-hmm. through parts of it, and yeah. and then seeing, you know, someone who's supposed to be stronger than him, more powerful than him, coming mm. as someone who could essentially be friends with his son. Yeah, I don't understand really where that came into the script. Somebody must have had this idea. I wonder if it was Ridley Scott himself. I imagine it would have been. Who'd come to this idea, let's do something outrageous now. Let's take the old man god with the white beard and let's make him into a child. And and I think there's a psychological issue going on there, isn't there? I mean, it's it's it playing on all sorts of emotions. 
also, it's very spooky almost. It's like quite, um, it's almost exorcist in the way that works. Uh, you know, it's quite frightening to see that sort of thing. Um, so he's, he's, he's made you sort of like on edge when that part of the scene is there. And in fact, you fear the child as God much more than you would do an old man. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a disturbing element that he's put in there. And uh, I, I think a lot of people don't think it works. Well, maybe some people do. I don't know. I, I'm neutral on it. I mean, I think it's a novel, but I think it's also pushing the limits a little bit. Do you think it's it, it's really more of a horror element having him as a child? Well, than... yeah, it is. It, and especially the ti- child has tantrums as well, loses yeah. his temper, you know, stomps around and shouts and throws things. Uh, so it's very weird. Um, but then again, you know, that's what you have to do in a, in a movie if you want lots of people to go and see it is put controversial elements in there. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff that the press talks about, and that's what builds up the the interest in the movie. Um, so we've got the the burning bush. And then the boy builds a moral model pyramid. I I noted, um, mm. which yeah, I can't, I can't remember that actually. Nah. <laughs> I don't remember that in the story. But anyway, yeah. But uh, you know, the the lead up, as it were, to to the Exodus, we've we've devoted what we've devoted an hour to that. So maybe we should move on yeah. to as quickly as possible to the actual events of um, Exodus, because that's where the criticism of Ridley Scott is really going to come through, as opposed to what we've got so, so far. I'll I'll go to we got Moses goes back to Egypt yeah. to ask for that's, the slaves to be set free. Yeah. Um, then we've got uh, crocodiles attack, and the Nile turns to blood through that, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is is a is an odd interpretation of the. Of it well, because it, because it's the blood of people that crocodiles have devoured. You mean? Yeah, because we don't yeah, really that's get a, that. Okay, so crocodiles yeah. causing the blood of the Nile is very yeah. interesting because the Bible doesn't say that. Of course, the Bible talks about uh, the pouring of water turning into blood. So it, it's the person who pours the water, which is Moses, out of a jug, and it turns to blood, and then it contaminates the Nile and spreads. That's how the story originates um so the crocodile thing i think is more of an action thing that that ridley scott probably wanted a bit more action to his his visuals he wanted something more dynamic you know uh, somebody pouring a jug of water out into the nile isn't really very dynamic but crocodiles devouring sailors in ships is much more dramatic then we get the plague of frogs and the plague of flies and then moses sends a message saying that these are god's works um through Writing on a horse, I believe. Mm. Um, and then uh, we have the plagues of livestock de- deaths, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness affecting the country. Okay, so up to there, we're all right because up to there, those most of those so-called miracles can be explained through natural phenomena. I mean, we do exp- all those things are experienced by people, and actually some of them follow on as a consequence of the previous one. So they're all pretty convincing. I don't think we have any issues about the historicity of those until we get to the last plague. That's the one that nobody can explain or understand. Um, and then uh, Ramesses says to God, let's see who's better at killing, um, mm. which is you know, very interesting point um because obviously we've got the death of the firstborns almost straight mm. after that um, and that's the one that nobody can explain that's the yeah. one how how does how do you selectively kill firstborn children and animals i mean you know nothing that in modern experience could explain that so no plague can do that no circumstances can do that so that's one that's very very hard and that's really the first time in the story that we get a supernatural event taking place. The rest of them can be explained, I think, through uh, science and, and, and modern knowledge. But that one, nobody can explain In the film, we see them trying to explain it, um, saying that the blood attracted the flies and the frogs. And Yeah, and that's all the way up so, to yeah. number nine. And then number ten, how do they explain that one? Yeah, um, so is there some... There, there is evidence, isn't there, of more deaths at that point well we do have we had we do have plague pits in the archaeological site underneath Ramesses the city of Avaris which is beneath Ramesses at this particular time in my reconstruction of the timeline we do have mass graves of people that have just been tossed into these graves one on top of another 
And and that obviously, even the archaeologists accept that this is some dramatic event that took place, some terrible plague hit the hit the city and hit the region. Uh, but of course, you can't tell from the bodies and the bones what was the cause. It could have been anything. Um, it's one uh, rabbi, rabbinical scholar, who suggested actually it might have been an earthquake. Uh, and what happened was that uh, people were crushed by the collapsing houses. Um, now, uh, that is not what's in the Bible, but that would be something that would be sudden enough to be able to kill lots of people in a single night. But why firstborn? That's the thing we can't really explain. Unless we understand that in a different way. Um, the ancient world was, was full of um, stories and archaeological evidence that families used to sacrifice their firstborn sons to their gods because they believed that they had to give their most prized possession, their most precious possession to the god to prove their loyalty to the god. So you get the Phoenicians do this, the, the Minoans do this, uh, and it's very possible that in even the story of Abraham we get him being told by God to sacrifice his, his newborn son or his son. Uh, that he'd loved, he wanted to have for many, many years, and he got him in his old age, and then he was told to sacrifice him. So maybe what this reference is to is not so much firstborn as the the the, the most beloved of the land, the most precious possession and uh, humanity of Egyptians. All the Egyptians who loved their their children had their children killed because they were precious to them. And it may be something like that, rather than specifically a firstborn son, literally. Um, and then we go on to. Uh... Ramesses exiles uh, the Hebrews and Moses plans their route which is yeah. of course the, the main gist, the main bit that I think many expect to, uh, the film to be and I think it's only about half of the film that it takes place over right. really, there's an awful lot of setting it up um, Right, and this is this is where I, I disagree with Ridley Scott's view here um, not only do I disagree with the way he puts it over but also he's taken uh, a rather rogue version of the story that was uh, first brought to the public attention by a guy called Ron Wyatt, who was an evangelical Christian explorer and uh, adventurer and a bit of a con artist. And he was the first one to propose that they went all the way across the Sinai Peninsula and crossed uh, the Gulf of Aqaba, part of the Red Sea, the eastern branch of the Red Sea that goes up to Aqaba and, and, and Jordan. And and he took that from Ron Wyatt, and and it's been it's been dismissed by so many academics, and yet he ran with it. He ran with this notorious idea. So everything that comes from now on, the crossing the crossing of the desert for for days on end, with the, with the Egyptians chasing them, we find in the movie, and then the crossing of this great sea, are all to do with this guy called Ron Wyatt, which Ridley Scott has uh, has ad adopted into his movie. Um, and then, of course, on their journey, we've got the thing uh, with the Red Sea, and mm -hmm. you've written about the whole thing of it being, a poss possibly being Sea of Reeds, as opposed well, to... Well, not possibly, that's being, what the Hebrew translates as, the, yeah. The Yam Suf means Reed Sea, or Sea of Reeds. Um, and so, yeah, the, the biblical story references a different type of event than the great deep uh, Sea of the Red Sea itself one of the two main branches. So modern scholarship doesn't put the crossing anywhere near there. It, it puts it in one of the lakes around where the Suez Canal is today. That's where the, the, the most scholars put it, where you could have an event like that taking place, created by a, what we call wind set down, where you have a strong wind blowing from the east. And it's been computer modeling has been used to show that uh, you could actually, with a 62 mile per hour wind, you could part one of these lakes you could push the waters to two sides uh, and actually the modeling has actually worked to show how that works but it has to take place in an area where we have these lakes bordering the between Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula where the Suez Canal is today and it's there that you could actually have that event taking place you can't have it taking place in the Gulf of Aqaba because the Gulf of Aqaba is like I don't know it's 800 meters deep at this point it's uh, two and a half thousand feet that's that's as high as the Burj Al Khalifa tower in Dubai which is the highest building in the world at the moment it's absolutely huge and so uh, you could never have that amount of water parting by any form of miracle or even wind because it's simply impossible so you say in your book that it was also a pharaonic canal um. yeah the world the, the, this is complicated but the place that they 
camp opposite, when they are camped in front of this reed sea, the Yamsuf, they are what the Bible describes as being opposite a place called Piha Keroth. Now, Piha Heroth, P is the word mouth in Hebrew, Ha is the word the, so it's mouth of the, and then Heroth is actually a Hebrew word which we find in a lot of Semitic languages, which means canal. So it's the mouth of the canal. Now, in this particular location I'm talking about, where these lakes were, there was a canal which came into these lakes, and the place where the Israelites camped was on the opposite side of the Reed Sea, facing this canal. That's the place where the waters parted, and they crossed over. So all the toponyms, all the names of locations that we find in the biblical story, are located in northwest Sinai, on the border of Egypt, and not on the other side of Sinai, in the Gulf of Aqaba. So once they cross the sea, and the sea is split, there are... Uh, several e Egyptians who don't make it across but Ramesses still yeah. does and it's at that point that Moses decides that he should invite his family to join them and he reunites with his family um, and we've got a, a short scene of that um, that's very interesting so where have this family been all this time have they been waiting for him on the other side of the of the sea and it sounds like that's what he's what he's uh, uh, you know portraying here but of course Ramesses he has to have Ramesses survive the the catastrophe of the drowning of the army because Ramesses body is in the Cairo museum so he didn't get drowned in any sea so he has to have Ramesses somehow miraculously escaping back to the Egyptian side of the sea and then going home without an army to, to die a normal uh, you know to die a normal way and be buried in the valley of the kings that's again stretching the, the original biblical text because the biblical text implies that the Pharaoh is killed along with his army because it says not one survives and usually the Egyptian Pharaohs led their armies into battle they didn't stand at the back like a modern commander and tell them to go forward they actually led them in their chariots so you know he wouldn't have survived the king who was drowned in the Reed Sea would not have survived um, so we've also at this point got Gershom who um as what I was saying before, is at the same age as how we're seeing God, which I think is not... Which is a bit strange, because, I mean, it's been donkey's year since Gershom was born. Gershom would be a man at this point in time, I'm pretty sure, in the story. Hmm. Definitely. Um, and then uh, we've got our final scene, which is Moses carving out the Ten Commandments and God speaking to him, which mm -hmm. is... A different way of portraying it in, in, in quite odd really that you know we've got him carving it out as opposed to God having written on them well there are two set of tablets aren't there the ones that God originally writes which Moses comes down the mountain with and he sees the golden calf and all the the people drunk and debauched uh, and he, he throws them to the ground and smashes them okay so those are the ones that God wrote and then he goes back up the mountain and God then dictates the Ten Commandments to him, and he inscribes them, Moses inscribes them. So I think that's okay. I think so that that's works. that's what we're probably seeing. It just seems, it seems odd that it's such a tiny part of the film that they just yeah. decide to put it in and not to really end the well, story it's, it's, here. It's the whole reason for the story is the Ten Commandments at the end of the day. But you miss something. I don't know if you... Did you spot it? When they're standing on the, the side of the, the Red Sea now in the film, the Gulf of Aqaba, and they look across the sea. Did you notice the comet or the I meteorite? I don't think I did, no. Ah, well, you want to look again, because you look at the distance and you see something coming down out of the sky with a trail behind it. It's like a meteor coming down and hitting the ground, and that's what Ridley Scott is implying causes the parting of the sea. Ah. Okay, so you need to look at that again. It's not everybody notices it, but it's in the distance and it strikes the ground and it causes this tsunami effect of the water drawing back and then coming back in the tsunami. That's what he's used as the miracle of the sea. So we've got to the, the end point of the film. Uh, there's, a, right. there's a final short segment I have each guest do on this podcast. And that is, and to be honest, with the amount of times I do this, I should really, I should really think it through. It is, um, if if you had to retitle the film, what name would you give it? Oh God! Well, let's have a think. So it's called Exodus: Gods and Kings, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think it should be called Exodus: uh, Director and Kings, yeah. because it ain't got anything to do with God at all. That that that's a very good point. Um, 
it seems odd that it's you know it's gods and kings as opposed to god and kings because you know although there yeah. are the the other gods well it's that conflict it's that conflict between the egyptian gods and the one true god of the bible is what what he's implying i suppose with that but uh yeah it, it's a funny title i have to say it is a, a funny title uh what what kings are there there's only two kings in it really and the only one that really plays the role of a king is ramesses uh you know because yeah. only in there as a sort of cameo role um, so yeah, it's a very strange uh, title to be honest. And I thought Cecil B. DeMille got it right when he called it the Ten Commandments because he got the focus right. Yeah, and why you know it isn't just called Exodus? Well, yeah, he could have done, couldn't he? Uh, but don't forget though, I don't know if you know this, but there were two Exodus movies being made at the same time. There was uh, the, the guy, the Japanese guy, was also doing. I can't remember his name. Uh, what what films did he do? Uh, oh, he did that um, that film with the guy in the boat, the Indian guy in the boat with the lion. What was that called? Oh, oh the tiger, rather. Yeah, yeah, Life of Pi. Life of Pi. He was the director of Life of Pi, and he was commissioned to do a movie about uh, Exodus as well. Uh, and they were both about making it at the same time. And uh, I think he, at the end of the day, he didn't make his movie, as far as I'm aware. So maybe there was this issue about making sure they didn't have the same title or that the, the titles were not just Exodus but had something else in the title to distinguish them from each other. And for our listeners, the director is Ang Lee, according to That's him. That's him. Um, so I don't know what happened to that. You Perhaps you should Google that sometime and find out what happened to that movie because he was, going, he was in the planning stages of it and it never got made. Uh, so what's next for David Roll? Well, I'm writing a, a, a book at the moment, uh, not on the Exodus. We're moving on now to the time in the Bible of the Judges and the Kings. So I'm taking the story further on. And I've been at it now for about a year. Uh, a lot of distractions with um, other things going on. So I've, I mean, I've not really had a chance to sit down and really concentrate on it. But there's some amazing stuff that I'm finding for that particular book. Then, of course, we've got all these um, movies to make for Tim, uh, Tim Mahoney and the Patterns of Evidence people. So that's going to take the next, I don't know, five years, I would think, hmm. making those. And they're going to come out on a regular basis. How they'll appear, whether they'll appear just on Netflix or whether they're going to appear in cinemas or on, on a broadcaster, I'm just not sure. But he's going through the whole gambit, basically working together with him on my material and other people's uh, ideas and, and theories and uh, going through the whole biblical story right the way down to the, the fall of Jerusalem by when King Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon and destroys the Temple of Solomon. So the whole story is going to be dealt with eventually, if I'm still around to do it. And so, busy time, really. Um, I'm off uh, doing tours as well. We've got a, a conference cruise on the Nile uh, in Egypt uh, next year, and uh, various other things to do in America. I've got to do a teacher course in Texas next year as well. So uh, I'm busy. I'm not, although I'm retired, I'm harder working now than I was before I was retired. <laughs> so... Uh... Where can people find you in terms of online? Uh, well, I, I never got into this business of having my own website because I found maintaining it was such a pain in the neck. So, uh, to be honest with you, you type my name into, into Google, you'll probably get near, nearly a quarter of a million sites. So, it'll you'll spend several years just going through those. A lot of them critical, some of them to do with my music as well as the history, historical side. So, I just, I just do a Google search. Um, Twitter at one point because I think I saw you on Twitter, but then well, what it is I haven't got Twitter. What what I've got is I I've got this thing where if you're on Facebook, you can assign your comments to Twitter automatically, but I don't know what happened to that. I mean, I find Twitter a nuisance to be honest. I mean, I I, I certainly don't like the idea of being on the same platform as Donald Trump. <laughs> so so to be honest with you, I couldn't care less about Twitter, but I am on Facebook uh, as I've got a couple of Facebook pages and I, I always write and communicate with people there so lots of people you know ask me questions and I respond sometimes I'm not always that kind to people if I think they're idiots but um, you know I'm a, I'm, I'm a northerner northwest of, uh, of the UK and uh, and so I speak my mind you know I, so you know but I'm, I'm as truthful as I can be you know I don't believe in messing people around and lying to people and, and I, certainly in my own research I actually try to be as, as honest as possible with what I do and if I find issues and problems with my own research I will find a way to um, incorporate those issues into the in the new version of the of the chronology I don't I don't sort of fudge things if I can help it so uh, yeah the work goes on find me on on Facebook find me 
on YouTube. There are lots of lectures on YouTube and bits and bobs on YouTube. And of course, at the Patterns of Evidence website, you can get my lecture DVDs and my books. So there's lots of places to find out about Mr. Roll. And in terms of this podcast, our listeners can find me at llama underscore bottle zero on Twitter, at please be tweeted uh, for the podcast, um, at please be seated on Facebook, um, Bottle Load Productions on YouTube, and hopefully we're on whatever podcasting platform uh, you guys will listen on. Um, so thanks a lot, David, for coming on today. To My review. pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. You're a very interesting person to talk to. Thank you. Um, so, it, yeah, it's been great to go a lot more in depth and a lot sort of on the historical aspect of film, um, which we don't really get with our other guests. So. Well, well, maybe Ridley Scott will be listening to this broadcast and he'll remake it with me as his advisor this time. Um, have you been doing anything recently with Mandela Band? Or is that uh, no, not for a while. Um, I've, I have been recording some s- songs in my studio. I have a studio in my house here. But uh, I'm not really making that a priority at the moment. I've got so much to do with the book writing side of it that I tend to do things in phases. So it's book writing now, maybe in another year's time or so. I, I might come back to the music side. But I am still writing music, for, of course, for Tim Mahoney's movies. So that keeps me busy. But on the Mandalaban side, that's on the back burner for a while. Um, so it's been it's been great to speak with you. Um, thank you very much. My uh, pleasure. Also, thank you everyone for listening and goodbye. Bye bye.